The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. It's our pleasure to be joined by our special guest, Stacy Kent. She's one of the most successful and internationally recognized jazz singers and recording artists. With over 2 million records sold, 2017 saw the release of her first orchestral album, I Know I Dream, in a discography of more than 15 albums. Thanks so much for spending time with us. Thank you. I have to say, I listened to this album of yours in complete darkness with headphones on. And it is about the most perfect sounding album I've ever heard. Thank you very much. I'm so thrilled to hear that. We uh, we spent a lot of time on the um, producing the sound and to make it. Well, we have a very sp- a specific agenda. Of course, we want to make it sound acoustic. We want to invite people in. We want it to be warm. Uh, but how we work on the sound is is very particular. Listen to it in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different rooms, on a lot of different speakers, uh, envisioning how people are going to hear it. And um, that's part of the fun. And is it perfection that you're seeking when you go into a recording studio? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Is it perfection? No. I mean, there's no such thing. And, you know, every day, okay, maybe not by the day, but we continue to grow and we continue to work. And, you know, I'm a better singer than I was a few years ago. And I hope to be a better singer than I am today uh, in a few years from now. And so, you know, it's a, it's a process and you can't make yourself crazy. Uh, you want it to be as good as it can be right then and there. But I think the thing that's important is a really human element, making something very beautiful, very emotional and very inviting, you know. And uh, so there are certain things, I'm not going to tell you what they are, but, you know, I had to let them go because there's a certain time frame. And so I'm there with the orchestra and maybe I didn't sing something exactly the way I wanted to. uh, And I, you know, sleep on it. And if it's... um, not on the certain things you have to, you kind of let go and, and live with, I suppose I have to say. So you mentioned that you're always working as a vocalist, always working on, on improvement. What is it that you do? How do you refine this art of yours? Well, th- there are a few things that I do. Um, one, you know, I have to say I sing a lot. I sing because it is it's kind of why I'm here. It's a, just a joy to sing. I think I sing even when it, I'm not practicing and I don't even realize that I'm singing. I think I'm singing, and I've always done that. So there's a lot of singing that goes on. I target specific things in my practice because there are specific things in my singing that I think can be improved. And so I work on those by exploring further, working on particular lines, talking to my voice teacher. Um, so there's, there's specific work and targeting on, on technical side. And then there's the other side, which is far more important, really, in that I am, I am trying to, I'm in a realm where we do something very emotional and very human. It's, it's 
so wonderful to be in, involved in a, a work that is about human expression and sharing that with people. And I think that, you know, I take a lot of time to think about the songs that I'm singing, my repertoire, um, what really works for me. Uh, and when I, when I sit down to think about how do I approach a song, it's not, it's not sort of with a pen and paper in my hand, hmm, how do I do this? I think I just sing it and I internalize it and I, I, I take in the story you know, I just, I want to tell my story as best as I can. But in a sense, you don't want to overthink it either and let it just happen naturally. But I think a lot of times you, I know all this sounds so vague, but uh, apart from the specific vocal technique work, but there's a lot of reflection time, I suppose, so that, so I'm really inside it. And maybe, you know, I'm a, I'm, I was a studier of of poetry, I studied literature and language and poetry as a as a student before I became a singer. You know, I would I would read these poems out loud, not because I had to, not because I was required to, but I always felt like the poet wanted their words to be in the air. You know, they were they were meant to be audible and floating through the air. Is that? And so I think I say my my lyrics out loud in that sort of way. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, it does. I, I don't know if I explained that very well, but that, that is an, another side of the process. Hmm. What has always been the purpose of the art you create? Um, generally or to me specifically? Um, to you. Okay, because, you know, human beings make art because they are compelled to make art because we are creative, imaginative beings. And so, you know, we can't help but do it. We're compelled to do it and we can do it in all sorts of ways. It doesn't have to necessarily be on the stage. I think for me personally though, I, and this isn't the way it should be for everybody else, but you know, I love to make people feel good. I really like to make people feel good or better if they need to feel better and just feel. I love sharing human experience with people. That is the most gratifying, beautiful part of my job. And day after day, I go out on tour and I meet people who are strangers. And yet we can so completely, thoroughly connect in this, in this particular realm. It is without frontier. It's without age. It's without culture. It's without country. It's without any of the other um, parameters that would otherwise divide us. And I like knowing that I make music. I make it for me because it's what I'm compelled to do. But I send it into the world and I think it can make somebody you know, feel if they want to feel pain or feel joy if they want to feel joy, just feel or forget, you know, people want to come on a journey with me and it's just in an abstract universe and, and they forget the, the stuff that's going on on the ground. That's what I like to do. And I think I've always been that way. And I don't know why it was that for me so strongly. When I was a kid, you know, my friends at school used to ask me to sing to them at lunchtime hmm. and not, I have to say, you know, because you, you you have this image conjured up and you might think that it's, you know, sing in a big show-stopping sort of a way. I was never that kind of a singer. I was the kind of singer I am today. It was very intimate. It was more one-on-one. -on -one. They would literally ask me to sing whispering into their ear. 
And I think that it gave me a lot of pleasure to know that I was making somebody feel good. Now, this was in amongst a bunch of little girls, so it was very lullaby-esque. And so I've always used music in that sort of way. It makes me feel good, it makes me feel better, and I think it can make other people feel better. Absolutely. Well, I want to get back to this album, I Know I Dream, a full orchestral album. What is it like for you singing with five dozen musicians? It's indescribable, uh, really, how that feels. I'm so exhilarated to be surrounded by that kind of musicians, whether that amount of musicians, whether on stage or in the studio. And the studio is particularly intense. Um, we were in this contained area playing these amazing songs, amazing arrangements, and so beautifully arranged. You know, it, it's, it's full on to be with an orchestra, and yet I love how we arranged it because they're there's so much space in this album. There's so much space for reflection. There's so much air. We had so much time to dialogue, to have conversations with Tommy Lawrence, uh, Jim Tomlinson, my saxophone player, who's also the producer of this album and composer of a few of the songs in the album. He and I sat down with Tommy and talked constantly about, you know, not overusing certain instruments, pairing certain voices together, creating the harmonies in a particular way so that story was still at the forefront of this album. It wasn't, you know, just big swooping orchestral sounds. So it's an unbelievable feeling. I mean, I'm still euphoric over the whole experience. I love being surrounded by these musicians and they loved it too. I mean, there was just so much, so much love in that studio. Was there a particular track? I know this is probably a hard question, but for you, a particular track that was especially transcendent. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are a few things. Um, I, I handpicked these songs. It took me a long time to pick these songs. I've been choosing them for a long time because I knew eventually I would make this record. Some things I held back particularly for this record. Um, and what, what ties the last question to this one actually is, you know, this is going to sound abstract too, but it's a very visual experience to sing with an orchestra. And I think I chose songs that have that visual quality um to me it's it's not that i'm i'm literally envisioning things but i do find it to be such a visual and cinematic experience and so i chose songs that have that kind of narrative that make it feel like you're in a cinema uh like the changing lights um double rainbow which to me is so evocative and so full of amazing images um, Double Rainbow by uh, Jobim, a uh, bullet train that Jim Tomlinson and, and Kazuo wrote for me, where I just find it so visual. Um, and then to say goodbye, Edu Lobos to say goodbye, which I've been waiting a long time to sing. Uh, I kept it back on purpose for this album because it just, for me, it cried out for orchestra. And I would say that those four were the, were the ones I, I sort of, I heard them before we played them. And um, it was as magnificent as I had expected. I think that That's All is really, really nice. And I'm curious, did you listen to perhaps some older versions of the song when it was time to record yours? Or how do you do a song like that that has been recorded by many artists? Um, 
That's so funny because I actually leave things for a very long time and don't listen to them so that I can get away from them. Of course, it's already so internalized because I grew up on so much of this music. And so, yeah, I do know other versions of that song. And yet I've left them for so long that I don't feel connected to any other version anymore, except maybe my own. I have to say there are a couple of songs, maybe three on this album that I had already recorded Yeah, there are three, because for me, again, they just cried out for orchestra, and that's always one of them. And it's funny because my other version, the previous version, was just a quartet version with Roberto Menescal, Roberto Menescal being one of the fathers of Bossa Nova, who wanted to make a standards album with me. And we made something very intimate, like we were just sitting in a living room together kind of album. Um, the way Bossa Nova was born, because those guys weren't recording it before. It started out in people's living rooms, hanging out and sharing music. And he wanted to return to that kind of um, space and sensibility, but with the American Songbook. And uh, we did just that. And I actually let Menescal choose the songs because he had never made a standards album before. And that was one he chose. So I had never sung it before. I knew it for years, but it just this was what was so much fun about getting Roberto to choose my repertoire because he kind of had a, a vision of our record being akin to Barney Kessel and, and Julie London, which is music he grew up on. Very intimate. So he had these ideas for me and I said, yeah, basically to all of them. Yeah, I'll do that. I do that. I love that song. I don't know why I've never sung that song. So we did That's All. In 2013, uh, 15, excuse me. And afterwards, I said to Jim, I think when we come to do the orchestral record, I'd like to do this again because I hear it in that intimate way, but also in this great big way. And so that's how we came to do that. And I don't think I needed to work too hard to get away from any other version. Are you competitive with other singers at all? Not at all. Not even an not even an iota. It's funny you should ask me that because I am I am not competitive. And I don't think that competitive, by the way, is a derogatory term. I mean, people just are how they are. I just happen not to be very competitive. I figure in other words, I don't have to work against it. It's just if you make music and you're compelled to make music and you're good at what you do and you love what you do and you invite people along to into your universe. What can you possibly compete about? You know, I love other singers. It's, it's, there are so many singers out there who've inspired me to become a singer. So I'm a listener and a fan of music as well as being a singer. You know, I feel very confident in what it is that I do. And I can only do so many shows a year, for example. So there's, there's really no reason to compete. But I think it comes very naturally to me not to compete. You know, and I'll give you a little funny example about home life, just so that it's contextual. Um, Jim and I play a lot of ping pong. And um, we, we, we have a ping pong table and we've never even, we play every day when we're home. We've never even played a game. It's just never occurred to us. We drill. We'll do things like we can't leave the table until we've hit a hundred cross cart shots without making a mistake. And then we'll do them to the backhand and we make up these little games. Like it's gotta be a forehand, a backhand, a forehand, a backhand, but we don't have to do it where we play any points and keep score. We just do it so that we can drill. So that seems to come much more naturally to us. And I have been in competitive realms before because I, I grew up playing competitive tennis. 
and I, I hated it. You know, the thing about making music is everybody who's bought a ticket to come and see you uh, is on your side. You want to go on a journey together. When you're standing on the other opposite side of a court from somebody you're competing with, that's a lot of pressure. I didn't enjoy that at all. <laughs> now, do reviews matter to you? Um, do reviews matter? Yes and no. It doesn't feel good to get a bad review and it feels good to get a good review, but you know, it only goes so far. It doesn't really penetrate because I'm going to do whatever I do regardless. I mean, if somebody points something out to me that I recognize as a fault or a weakness or something that can be improved, I'm sure that that does make its way in. But in a sense, it doesn't really matter because how somebody sees you is just how they see you. And it depends on their own history and their own experience. And sometimes they have their own agenda. And I have to do just what it is that I have to do. Um, you know, and I'll give you some examples. You know, early on, I was told a lot of things when I was starting out. If you don't scat, you're not going to make it. Um, if you don't, you know, you're not, you're not dramatic enough. Because I had a very understated kind of quality to my singing and I felt much closer to the Brazilians for example you know I loved I grew up on Joao Gilberto and I loved Joao's presentation and Jobim and Idu Lobo and, and these people who sing so often with so much emotional intensity but not a lot of drama and I felt very connected to that kind of singing and I got criticized for that at the beginning you know now I, I get it less but you know, you have to do this, that, and the other if you're going to make it. And I never listened. I just followed, you know, this is going to sound corny, but it's so accurate. It's so true. I just followed my heart. I figured that if I did what I did and I felt good about what I, you know, I, I knew who I was as a person. I understood who I was and what was going to work for me. And I just did it anyway. So sure, you know, you read them and you, you take it in, but it can only, it can only go so far. It doesn't really matter. It's not going to change what it is that I am compelled to do. Hmm. Now, you were mentioning earlier Jim Tomlinson, and I'm hoping you can tell us, what is it about him that makes him an ideal musical and creative collaborator for you? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. I do know that it's uh, it's amazing chemistry. But then sometimes things in chemistry aren't really explainable. You know, why do two people have a particularly good dialogue or really just hit it off? Jim and I just hit it off, you know, personally and musically. I think we're a great team for one another because we share so many of the same elements and yet we're quite different and we come from different backgrounds too. So we bring different elements to the music as a team. I think Jim has great ears, you know, really such a wide vision of, you know, what he knows about music is such a wide range. And it's funny because, you know, people might not realize that because you play in a specific genre and you play in a specific way and you're very honed and very focused. And yet there's so much width and breadth to that, 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 that goes into that, that he's really a remarkable musician and also I think what's so lucky for me is that he really understands me. He understands me as a person. And so as my producer and my partner, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have that because I feel so completely understood. And, you know, the people I work with in general, with Jim, with Ishiguro, uh, with, with the songwriters I'm uh, who are writing for me, I think they really get it and really get me. And I think that that's why it makes it 
so tailor-made and, and work so well. As someone who has created music that is enjoyed by people all around the world, and your chance to travel and meet people, it's a very unique occupation. What has that taught you about people? This is the single best part of what it is that I do. And I love that you asked this because I think about this a lot of time. You know, when I'm off the road too and I come home, like right now I've come home and I get to, to reflect on where we've been and what we've done. You know, the world, particularly right now, is is so crazy and blindsided by so many things. And to be a musician who gets to travel around the world, and we've been in over 50 countries, 50-odd countries, and you meet people, and you're strangers, but you connect, like I said earlier, you realize that people are exactly the same. They have the same hopes, the same fears, the same daily tedious things, the same dreams. You know, we share so much in common with people, so much in common. And to be in a work, in a, in a field where I can share human experience with people no matter where we go, whether we're in Asia or Africa or my continent or the European continent or anywhere, is remarkable. And it's amazing to be so it's not simply just that, you know, people love my music or they say you have a great voice or, you know, I get embraced, you know, for being this person who presents music on stage. It has nothing to do with fame or recognition. It's really the human quality that when you peel everything else away, that is the most essential. And it's funny because you asked me about the, the reviews earlier and how come they, you know, how much they matter. And sometimes you're misunderstood by people. They'll miss the mark when they're describing you. But the people who come to the show, they, um, they really, they get you, you know, they're there because they want to go on the journey with you. It's not just that they get you, you get each other. You're in the same place, even though you're not, you really are. That is such an exhilarating feeling. So, you know, it's, it's hard to be on the road a lot of the time. And I find it you know, I've just come back after a very long tour. We've been away with, this, with the release of I Know I Dream since the end of August. So we've come home exhausted, and we need the break and to recharge. But I have to be on the road like that because I just have to go out and meet people the way I do. You know, so it's hard for me to turn it down, even though I could have more time at home. Because I love meeting, I love people. I think that's why I studied literature and poetry and language too, because I love communicating with people. So it's the same sort of thing I do today. On the note of meeting people, what is the best compliment a fan, another musician, anyone, where they've come up to you and they've said something to you, the best compliment? Oh, I don't know. Um... You know, I meet some pretty amazing people who tell me some pretty amazing things. Story after story, when I do signings after the shows and stuff is flooding into my mind right now. It's not necessarily a specific line. It's how people want to tell me how I have been incorporated into their lives, how I've affected their lives. There was a guy, he was a movement well, he still is a, a movement teacher. He teaches movement to actors and he had been in an accident and he went into a coma 
And uh, his partner played me in his ears on his, you know, earbuds on his iPhone over and over again to help him because he loved my music and to awake him from this coma. And he woke up, you know, and he's okay. And he came to a show in uh, at, at Birdland to tell me this. And I'm so grateful for that opportunity. And I'm so moved. Um, there was another little girl. She's nine. And she was from Denmark. And she was in the United States having a special cancer treatment. And she wrote me to tell me that uh, she brought me into the treatment room every day because I made her feel better. And, you know, she was going through a treatment which was making her sick. It was ultimately going to cure her, but it made her sick. And uh, she brought me into her treatment room every day. And she was nine. And it was so heartbreaking. And so to be told, you see, that's much more valuable. It's not the compliment that matters. That is the compliment that people are you make this music because you have to make this music and then people are using it in their lives to uplift them, to make them feel hope, to make them feel good. And I get story after story like that when I go to the shows or when I get mail from my agent and um, it's amazing. What misconceptions do you think there are about jazz musicians? Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I, even if I talk about this, some of them might sound so superficial, you know, that there's a superficial idea about musicians in general, uh, you know, that they're tortured or they're very angry or, um, you know, I think that these are people who feel a lot of emotion, whether, it, you know, it can be a lot of emotion. It's pretty intense. But then everybody's feeling that, you know, there's everybody's feeling intense emotion in their lives and and pain and heartbreak. We're all in the same boat. I don't really know. Um, I think that there was a superficial view once upon a time, but I think that's probably dissipated. What is the best thing about being Stacy Kent? Uh, being married to Jim Tomlinson. That is hands down the best part because I get this great partner to go through life with and uh, to be on the road with and home with. And as I do this interview with you right now, I can hear him practicing a few doors down uh, in his practice room playing his flute, and I get to wake up, have breakfast, and, and, and hear that. And uh, that's very joyous. This is a very open-ended question, but as we're closing here, there's people listening from all over. What would you say to the audience out there? I don't really have a, a very focused world message that I could articulate right now. I think I probably do. I think what's probably in my heart today is in so many people's hearts because we feel in a particular place in time and history that's not easy. So I think that I feel a lot of what other people are feeling. I guess one of the things I would like to to say to anybody listening who does listen is to say thank you for being on this journey with me because I guess you get the picture. I love making music with people and for people uh, and sharing a really human experience. You know, I, I'm not very good at expressing this, but I think of great poets I turn to who who inspire me and fuel me in what it is that I do. And I just 
one pops into my head from the great poet Vinicius de Marias, who said, uh, Samba, this is translated, Samba is the hope of one day no longer being sad. And I love that line from Samba de Bensa, which uh, I sang as Samba Sarava. You know, it's a, a great feeling to share music with people and hope for tomorrow being better than today. How would you define Stacy Kent? Um, I'm a person who likes to share. I like to share experience and share things and share moments and share music. That's very important to me. I think that I'm a person who feels things very intensely, but not terribly dramatically. So I look uh, calmer on the outside than I might be on the inside. I think that that's a, a key to the making of the music because it's um, a place where I can channel all of these things that I have felt my whole life. And I think that that's really important. I think I feel very lucky that I was able to find my route to expression. Well, thank you very much for spending time with us. I want all the listeners to check out your website. It's stacykent.com, stacykent.com, Stacy with an E. And also, thanks to Crossover Media for making this interview possible. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Real pleasure. Thanks for calling. All right. Thank you. Take care. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.